0: And she told me, she's like, you're not stopping after your master's, right? You are continuing on with a PhD. And I was like, No, no, I'm not. I'm just going to just do the traditional path, get married, have kids, <laughs> leave me alone. And she's like, No, like you can't. Like we need Muslim women who have knowledge of the Quran and knowledge of neuroscience and psychology. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, maybe a PhD in Islamic studies or in like spirituality. And she's like, No, no, you have to do it in neuroscience or psychology. We need Muslim women in these spaces. Mm-hmm.
1: The the up official podcast of the Migration and Critical Health Psychology Research Group at York University in Toronto, Canada. By chatting with you and experienced researchers and professionals in the area, we explore their personal journeys and the important work they do, what it is, why it is, and how it came to be. My name is Michael Ruderman. Uh, with us, as always, is our fantastic producer, Ben Stevenson. Hi, Ben. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Kashmala Qasim is a PhD candidate in psychology at York University, uh, a researcher at Khalil Center. She's a lecturer at the Islamic Online University and a member of our mock psychology team. She has a diverse educational background uh, with a master's in neuroscience from McMaster University, a diploma in Islamic studies from al huda Institute, and level one pastoral counseling training from the University of Toronto. Kashmala is passionate about bridging the gap between psychology and spirituality, and using her research to improve mental health outcomes for Muslim women. Her current research, which we'll hear a bit about today, focuses on Muslim women's experiences of empowerment and well-being through recitation, reflection, and reclamation of the Quran. Now, on a personal note, uh, Kashmala was one of the first graduate students in my program whose work I got to know. Uh, and it's been a you know real pleasure learning so much from her about research uh, and about how to be a professional, positive you know positive and diligent presence in the academic world. Uh, Kashmala, thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to learn more about you and your work.
0: Thanks, Mike. That was too kind, especially the personal point. I got a little emotional just hearing that. I didn't read that earlier.
1: Well, it's very true. Um, but other than that did that intro sound okay was there anything you'd like to challenge or uh no, add? that
0: all sounded good
1: okay we're gonna dig in a little deeper throughout our talk but i was hoping you could start us off with an overview sort of an elevator pitch description of your dissertation project which i know you came to speak with us uh, about today
0: yeah for sure um so i think what you covered that was that was great essentially just the the macro level um of my research is looking at the relationship between faith and mental health very broadly speaking and then just uh, subsumed within that is Islamic psychology and Muslim women's mental health. So if you want to go a little bit narrower now in our hypothesis and our research questions, um, I'm really interested in looking at how Islamic psychology, just how it's developed and grown in the last uh, two decades, how that is now impacting Muslim women's mental health and what we can draw from classical Islamic Uh, works and how do we sort of merge that with our modern day understanding of psychology, big P psychology, small P psychology, all of that great stuff. Very cool. Now I'd like to
1: move a bit more to talk about you personally and why it is that you do this work. Um, So I wanted to start with talking about your You know your master's degree is in neuroscience, which I think sounds very different from what you're doing (laughs) right right now. Um, So I know you switched your focus dramatically uh, for your doctorate. Could you tell
0: us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I I still love neuroscience. It's still like my my first love. I love the brain. I love talking about the brain. Um, Yeah, I love the brain. I love the brain. Yeah, my my kids hate it. Like I just I would I'll just like tell them like this is the part of your brain which you are not using right now as you are. But that's that's a whole other story. I, I switched over. I, again, it was, it was not an intentional uh, switch. I had no idea I would be. I would end up here um, after my master's. As I was defending my master's thesis, it was around looking at psychosocial factors uh, relating to bariatric surgery for morbidly obese uh, individuals. Mm. We it was like three hundred people in this database. Um, we did the a multiple regression analysis and all of those, all of that quantitative stuff. Uh, they these individuals had to fill out. Um, I think it was 30 or 40 questionnaires. And at the end, none of my findings were significant, which is always like a bit of a a downer when when you're doing quantitative research. You're like, I just want one like p-value that's less than 0.05 and nothing was showing up.
1: So nothing that you thought you might find was found.
0: Yes, yeah. From the literature, like I just, I I thought I had, um, I could stumble upon something, but nothing was coming up. And then just at the end, I just, I asked the supervisor if I could just do a quick amendment on my uh, research proposal I was like so close to defending and she's like that's fine but it won't be included in your master's thesis it's just something that you're curious about mm. and I again, the word qualitative subjective reflexivity then of this was in my terminology at that time uh, So I, ju- I just want to just call up some of these individuals and just ask them like hey what was going on in your life when you were going through uh, bariatric ga- gastric bypass surgery uh, we thought these were the things that would maybe impact your outcomes after the surgery um, so I, ca- I think maybe I think I amended the study to maybe about 25, 30 people. I just called them up, and they said, "Oh, it w- I was actually just going through a divorce at that time. I was moving houses. I got into a car accident." And those were the things that were impacting their outcomes after weight loss surgery, not the factors that the literature was showing us, and not the factors that we thought that we had hypothesized. And I, it just it was like a light bulb moment. Again, no one told me that what I was doing was qualitative research. So I ended up defending my thesis. I was like, okay, that, that's cool, whatever that was. Like, I just called up people. And um, and then I switched over completely to pastoral counseling. And I think that's coming up later. So I'll talk about that later. So that's sort of just, it just sort of ended in that way.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you kind of organically found a totally different kind of research that helped you answer yes. your questions way better than, right. than how you were going about it before. Yes. Yeah. Why don't we talk about pastoral counseling? Yeah. How does that come into play?
0: Yes. Um, I don't know how that comes I think, you know what happened? I think with those quali- those qualitative interviews, there were not even interviews, it was just like one question I asked these individuals. Sure. Um, it just, it felt therapeutic. Like people, like these individuals started crying on the phone. Um, I had no therapy background. I'm like, oh, I'm in neuroscience. Like I don't do this stuff. Mm. Um, so I just decided to try my hand at counseling, at just some sort of uh, therapy. And prior to my master's, uh, that's when I had completed my Al-Hudha diploma course as well. So now I'm sort of armed with, like, the Islamic knowledge, plus, like, neuroscience, plus some psychology from my undergrad days. So I want to try pastoral counseling. So not just secular forms of counseling, but something that would allow spirituality to be fluid with uh, psychotherapy. So UFT has this great program at the Emmanuel College, the Muslim Studies program. Um, It was, I think, the first or second year. So it it was a very early on program. So that's when I had joined. Um try it was great it was um it was it was very christian focused at that time there were just not that many muslims in the program but still great it was still uh, very relevant um so i took the courses for one year i did one year of like a practicum at al Institute I went back to Al and that's where I saw my patients or my clients for my free internship and I just I did not realize um what a need there was for mm. Muslim therapists and Muslim counselors. Mm. There was I had a waiting list in less than two months. So I'm just like, I can't, like, I'm only, I'm only a student. I can only take on four people a week. Um, so that's sort of the experience for pastoral counseling. Um, and then combining it with the funding that I got during my master's days, which I forgot to mention, was for a community engagement program to go out into the community and do a mental health workshops. So I was sort of doing therapy one-on-one and also doing mental health workshops in the community. Wow.
1: Um, I, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about... Um about working as a pastoral counselor yeah. was uh, how what what is that experience like for those of us who uh you know of course never worked as a psychologist or a right. counselor um and uh maybe also how that might inform your research and and what you find yeah. interesting in your research
0: absolutely um so i think just like being like just on a therapist hat it, w- it was the most eye-opening experience like i i would like I, I'm, not, I'm not a psychotherapist right now. I, I don't know if I'll go ever go back to finish my hours. I think I did like 100 hours at that time. Um, like you' you're carrying so many stories. like you're carrying all these stories of people um, that I knew at Alula Institute. These were my teachers, these were my students. Mm. Some people, of course, I, I didn't know who they were. And they're trusting you with that information. And I was, of course, coming from neuroscience, a little doubtful of therapy. I'd never been to therapy myself. It's like, how can just talking to someone and listening to someone, how can that be so powerful? And then, of course, I had to conduct my feedback surveys and bring quantitative into it again. So I would ask them, like, hey, was this like session useful? And at the end of every session, it was like 95% useful, 98% success rate. But I was like, your life hasn't changed. Like you are perhaps still in that abusive relationship. Perhaps you're still getting out of that divorce. Perhaps you're still having that generational trauma. I haven't changed anything. I just created a safe space for them to talk about what they were going through. And that that empathy, that validation, that non-judgmental attitude, that's what mattered. And that's, it's, it, I just didn't know how powerful therapy could be. So it was, it was a real eye-opening experience and I had just like hats off to therapists or anyone who does this sort of mental health, like one-on-one clinical work. It was, yeah. It was amazing.
1: <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah. Does that relate at all to your research work? Because I know doing qualitative research, you also carry a lot of people's yes. stories. <laughs> exactly. um, yeah, have you found any kind of synchronicity there?
0: Yes, exactly what you said. Um, so I think qualitative research is like this amazing mix of uh, systematic storytelling and therapy. I just find it very therapeutic. I think my participants find it therapeutic as well. So I think it just melds so well. So I use those tools, that my little toolkit of psychotherapy, in my research all the time. So even though it's systematic, I have to follow a certain semi-structured guideline for interviews, I still, I I can use psychotherapy in that. And I think get get good information from my participants and not just use it as data, but really just use it as their life experiences. And I end up learning a lot more from my participants.
1: Wow, a great way of building stronger connections too with your participants. Yes, absolutely. I'd love to talk about the Alhuda Institute. It keeps coming up. Yes. it It's like a very important um, yeah. um, thing in your life. So I'd yes. lo- maybe we can go back to before your master's degree. Sure. Getting that diploma in Islamic studies.
0: Absolutely. Uh, so Alhuda Institute uh, was founded in 1996 in uh, Pakistan. It was um, at the time, and I think still currently, is um, the only like sort of Islamic institute run for women by women. So it was founded by Dr. Farhat Hashmi, who did her uh, PhD in Islamic studies. Way back when, and that was like not a thing at that time. It was primarily a male-dominated um, arena, and her goal was just like, hey, why don't we make the Quran accessible for women? Like, why does it have to be that it's just the imams or the scholars? Like, you have to take like an eight-year like leave and go study the Quran. Why can't we have like just moms coming in and academically studying the Quran in a way that they will understand? They can just pass it on to their kids to their families. So it was a very um, was a unique perspective, it continues to be even until this day. Uh, it, is, it is academic, it is very formalized studies, it's tests and assignments and quizzes. Um, but by the end of the course you are able to understand the Qur'an in English. So I can just like translate it for you without the, I won't need to understand the Arabic necessarily, but I have some rudimentary knowledge now of Arabic grammar, root word analysis. So I can tell you what a particular verse means in English, the historical con- context, as well as any misconceptions around that particular mm. verse in the in the modern day understanding. So,
1: very cool. And mm-hmm. it sounds like you've kept that relationship with the Alhuda Institute um, after that. So yes. I, I'd love to ask you about relationships with community organizations and schools, yes. and and is that a meaningful part of the work you do?
0: Yes, absolutely. So I I'd like to call myself a community-based uh, researcher. I do I take my inspiration from Michaela a lot in that. A lot of our work just sort of directly comes from the community, and we always go back to the community, too.
1: Michaela Henia being our, yes, our, super, both yes, our <laughs> supervisor, <laughs> supervisor and also um, yes. the first guest we had on, on yes, the show. Yes,
0: exactly. Um, yep, yeah. so in terms of um all Institute, I think just after getting that that foundational knowledge, I think that, that's what really helped me solidify my Muslim identity, because the first question we were asked in, our, in that class was, why are you muslim <laughs> like why are you even here uh so we, it was like it was, it was a critical like look at like okay what does it mean mm-hmm. to be muslim do you even know what the quran is saying there were some um inter-religious studies as well so we had to read the bible as well we read some passages from the torah as well so it was like it was a nice overview of like the abrahamic religions um looking at the current social political things that are happening within the muslim world outside the muslim world so it really solidified my identity so i, I think i always just go back to al-huda institute um, they were also the first ones to host my mental health workshops. And again, they would just, just keep asking me to come back to do these mental health workshops. I did my pastoral counseling internship there as well. And then just full circle moment, I'm doing my dissertation study yeah. with the participants there as well. So I think they're um, they're very encouraging of like women, especially who have graduated from al Huda, to sort of go beyond the institute and just go out there. And uh, my, my uh, Quran teacher, at that time when I had finished my master's, I had come there just to say hi to my uh previous like staff and teachers and students. And she told me, she's like, Kashmir, you're not stopping after your master's, right? You are continuing on with a PhD. And I was like, No, no, I'm not. I'm just going to just do the traditional path, get married, have kids, <laughs> leave me alone. And she's like, No, like you can't. Like, we need Muslim women who have knowledge of the Quran and knowledge of neuroscience and psychology. Mm. And so I thought, okay, maybe a PhD in Islamic studies or in like spirituality. And she's like, No, no. You have to do it in neuroscience or psychology. We need Muslim women in these spaces. So they've always been very encouraging of that as well. So I, I, that relationship just continues.
1: So we spoke a little bit about how you came to your dissertation interest. Um, I, I'd love to ask how your personal experience as a Muslim woman and your r- relationship with Islam influenced your, your research interests and, and questions.
0: Yes, that's a great great question. Um, I think it continues to evolve. So it's it's just, it's been evolving since, I would say, since high school. Um, I would say, personally, just seeing like the, um, just a huge gap in like my, just the lived experiences of Muslim women, myself, my friends in Toronto, versus, of course, things that were happening, especially I would say post 9-11 and just seeing how Muslims are being represented, Muslim women, especially in the media. And I just felt like, but that's that's not me like I how come like, that doesn't like they, he looks like me but that's not me like I'm, I'm going to university like my parents are not like they're not abusing me so not, then nothing's oppressive in my life um so not being able to voice that in any meaningful Away, So I think that personal experience was like, okay, I need to like get into these spaces so at least I can at least just have like a little research voice on the side just saying that, hey, maybe like Muslim women are not all like this or Islam is not all like this. I think 9-11 definitely was a big um, turning point into just like, okay, do I, what do I do at this? Uh, point and I used to live uh, we lived in Oklahoma for one year oh, no yeah. way. so that was a whole different experience so living in the states when 9-11 happened so that I think a lot of these life experiences sort of shaped um, what I would I'd want to do and then the second I uh, sort of personal thing was my mom when I was telling me that which was just always a very curious child just asking a lot of questions um, especially around not the faith but more about Pakistani culture and South Asian culture so I just things would just always bother me at weddings or at like funerals. And I would just constantly be questioned, like, why is this? How did this come to be? Why do we practice this and not this? So that's, I think my, my friends and my mom, they were like, you just need to like be a researcher and just ask all of your questions. And don't ask me, just go bug somebody else <laughs> about this. So yeah. that's sort of the personal side of it.
1: They might not read your research then. <laughs> okay, no one's going to read my dissertation, no.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: I'm also curious about your relationship to arts and the arts as therapy. Um yeah. where did that interest come from? I, I feel like we haven't quite gotten there yet.
0: Right. Yes. Um so arts I was I no no formal training background. Like I, I got a horrible grade in grade nine, grade ten visual arts. So nothing uh nothing academic about it, just a personal interest I just I just find art myself very therapeutic so I, I'll do the calligraphy I'll just like even though that institute I hope my teachers don't listen to this but I would doodle like in the, the pages of the Quran the side pages just to like um and I would doodle in a way that was meaningful like kind of like mm. a conceptual chart so if I didn't understand a verse or something in Arabic I would just draw it out so just visual things always help me Um, so I've always liked drawing I've liked painting calligraphy Islamic calligraphy all of that so I thought, okay, if I find this therapeutic, I wonder if other people find this as relaxing. Maybe some people find it stressful to draw, which I did learn from my other study that some people do find it very stressful mm-hmm. to draw and represent themselves through art. Me um, too. I, I do. You do <laughs> as <well. Okay>. With <laughs> you arts do. and crafts. I,
1: <laughs> I love art in yes. research, but if you right. actually give me a pair of scissors and okay. a paper, I'm like, oh.
0: Yes, okay, so I, I love I love all of this stuff. I'm hoping to instill it into my kids as well. Um, yes, that's really just It's a very personal sort of thing, I just found it very relaxing after just like a long day. If I, if I just have just if, if you can just give me markers and paint, like just very just like basic things, I'll just draw. And I, I, I think art also it has the type of art that I like to do has no like rules, no structures. I think just to get away from the structure of mm. academia, of even like therapy, like you got to follow lots of rules. In art, I can just like be whatever, do whatever, and then no one has to see that piece of art, whatever right. I want to draw it through.
1: That's beautiful. Yeah, and then when you apply that to research, you're making that space for your participants too, yes. where they can, yeah.
0: Absolutely, yes.
1: Wow. So I wanted to ask, are there any challenges or barriers that you feel you face um, being a woman, being um, Muslim, and being a mother? I know we just talked a little bit, today about um your daughter's feeling sick so I know all of these things uh come up so uh, yeah. yeah are you do you face any challenges or barriers and how do you juggle all of that
0: yeah absolutely I think the first um I, I want to say I'm very grateful for all the opportunities that I've had so generally it's been smooth sailing nothing nothing too uh, traumatic or overly challenging um I think definitely combining like spirituality religiosity in an academic, in a secular academic space uh, was challenging initially, mm. which I, I had expected that challenge to come, um, but more so I think the community-based part of my work. So I think initially just having kind of uh, advocating for yourself that I, I, I do belong in this space as well. Uh, I was told by a few people that, hey, why don't you just like be like a volunteer or just like, why don't you just uh, be a social worker or just like I think that might be better suited. But I was like, no, I want to understand things systematically. I don't want to just go to a protest or a rally, which I think has its time and place, but I want to understand the nuance of things and Mm -hmm. systematically understand things and hear different sides of the story. I don't just want to follow what I'm following. Um, So I think the community-based part of it was a little bit difficult. And then on top of that, the spirituality part of it, the how can you actually study spirituality? Like, are you, are we judging people for being too religious or not religious enough? Mm. So just advocating for myself that I'm not studying any one particular religion or religiosity. I'm just looking at what people are telling me about their level of spirituality and if it has any relationship to mental health. So just sort of getting people used to like just just, just the word Islam and Muslim and psychology all in the same sentence um, and being okay with that. So that was, I think, the the main challenge. Um, but now, just again, the literature we have like AP journals um, around religiosity around faith. So it's 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 getting there. Like it's become. lot easier so many more people are talking about this then
1: fantastic i realize i grouped together a bunch of different concepts (laughs) there so could you also tell us about being a mother and um, how that uh, informs your experience of the academic world
0: yes absolutely um so i i call my two children like my my son is like my first year phd child and my daughter is my last year phd child so i've had two kids over the span of my doctoral wow. studies um and just really thankful to, again to Michaela our supervisor she's been very supportive uh, throughout all of this um so it's, it's an interesting place to be in when you're a mom and you're also a researcher and like a, a community workshops facilitator person as well um that I think I I want to be able to show Muslim women that, hey, like you you can get married and have children and also continue doing these things. Um, And what happens from sort of the insider um, approach is if you just focus on your career or just on your research, then, of course, um, within our own communities, there is that sort of, oh course, she doesn't really care about her religion, doesn't care about Mm. her family. She just sort of into her own thing. So I'm always like sort of juggling these identities, like in the academic world, showing Our committees, like my fellow peers, say, "Hey, no, I'm here. Like when I'm here, I'm focused. I'm a researcher." Then also sort of going back to the Muslim committee and saying that, "Hey, no, I also care about my family. I did cook dinner today. Uh, The house is somewhat clean." Um, So it is. It is that part is definitely challenging. Just my own like issues around identity and just being able to balance both of those. Practically speaking, there's a lot of the internal work and also the external work. So internal work, getting up like. Way earlier than my kids getting things sort of like ready for them for the day and then commuting to campus and then going to class and making sure childcare is available. Um, the practical side of all of that is family support. I could not do this without the support of my in laws, my parents, my husband. Like they're just like, they are like, <laughs> they're and whenever anything happens, they're right there uh, beside me. So I could not have done it without the family support. So I'm really appreciative. Of that, And then externally, just having a, a department, a supervisor, my fellow peers being understanding if I can't make it to a lab meeting one day, if I can't come for a social gathering, um, that it is because I am putting my family first at that time or someone is sick or I just need to take them to a dentist appointment. So a lot of like little practical mom things can affect um, the research sometimes as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. I really appreciate how you've sort of framed, you know, it's often framed like you. Um, to get ahead in your career, you kind of do have to neglect all of these elements of your personal or community right. life um, to really focus on your work. But I love your framing how, mm. in many ways, that can jeopardize those things, especially if you're doing the kind of work you're doing. Right? How you know being a part of your community and yes. and your family and being involved actually um, does help the work for right. you very in very tangible ways yes. um, because of community response to that. Absolutely. Um but yeah, I love that framing. No, thank you. Yeah, and I'll say I'm very impressed with how you can juggle all these things because yes. I I know it's a challenge. Um, yeah. But I'm yeah I'm glad you found people around you who support that and are, are okay w- with it. Have you yeah. ever encountered moments where people aren't as understanding about you know you have uh, an appointment with your kids and you have right. to miss something important and uh, there right. are issues or anything like that?
0: Yes, um, I think maybe just like once there was a grant that was due, but I was brought onto the team like way later. This was external. This was Not related to our lab or York, and um, yeah, my my son was sick. I just could not get back to the emails fast enough, so there was a little bit of a falling out moment. And I just, I yeah, I just, and maybe I shouldn't have. I should have given my time, the space. I just should have just understood my own boundaries. That there's no way I could meet this grant deadline in 48 hours. So I think I learned from that experience. I know, as a mom now, you need like at least a month in 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 advance if there's any project that's coming up. I, I'm not just a single student anyways That was my master's days where I could just stay up like for two nights and get something done. So it was a good learning experience regardless. That's
1: stuff. very cool. Could you tell us a little bit about the specific project that you did that um, that does all that?
0: Yeah, yeah for sure. So, um, of course, as part of doctoral studies, it's like a, a series of studies that lead up to the final dissertation. So I won't talk about those just yet. So just my final uh, dissertation, right. uh, I'll speak more to that. Uh, so I looked at... Um, conducting in-depth qualitative interviews with 38 women at al Huda Institute that you had mentioned earlier. Mm. Uh, so I'm a graduate of that institute. I completed my formal Islamic studies from there. Uh, so this was during COVID. So all of this happened online. And my main question there was that, hey, these women are studying the Quran from a traditionalist standpoint. It's not a reformist reading. It's not a modern day reading. It's like from a traditional standpoint. Um, and yet they feel empowered they they will call themselves um, perhaps not feminists but feminism in their own way in their their understanding of feminism. Um, They are modern women, they're living in present-day Toronto, Canada. So I just sort of wonder like how is studying the Quran a very traditional book uh, learning it from other women being with other women so that part of the peer support aspect of it plus the aspect of like living in in this society living with Islamophobia, just all the different intersectionalities that these women are living with. How is all of that impacting their levels of empowerment, their perception of their own mental well-being, and then ultimately their spirituality and their identity as Muslim women?
1: That sounds like an amazing uh, research question. You. <laughs> um, could you tell us a little bit about how you how you um, studied it and sort of a brief overview?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um so more of the methodology, is that what you're Yeah, what a,
1: yeah, tell me a little bit about the methods yeah, and um, for sure. and the participants and yes. maybe a bit about the findings too. That would be great. Yeah,
0: for sure. This is great like practice for my defense. So this is
1: <laughs> Let <laughs> well, me let old. me go back. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: please, yeah, please. Um, do, uh, use okay. it as practice, <laughs> yeah. why not? I'm just going to use this as a practice session. Uh, so for methodology, as I mentioned earlier, this is a qualitative uh study. my supervisor and I, Michaela and I, we had gone back and forth on maybe doing a mixed method study, but I think A qualitative study really just sort of honed in on what my research objectives were. Uh, So I had uh, used Zoom for this. And we had just conducted like an hour, hour and a half interviews with 38 women. Uh, These are adult Muslim women identifying um, Muslim women from al Huda Institute uh, who are either in the program currently there or they have graduated. So they could be anywhere in their Quranic journey. Um, And then I had a set of like about 10 or 12 questions looking at these elements of mental health, psychology, identity, empowerment, feminism, all of these uh, themes came up. And then we used um, DEDUCE to analyze all of this uh, data. I had um, two people from our lab, Dima and Aruba, actually. So they were my research assistants and they were amazing. Yep. So they helped me with analyzing all that data, iterator reliability, iterator coding, all of that happened. Um, And now I'm currently in the data analysis piece of it and in the final writing portion of it. Um, and one thing I forgot to mention earlier, Mike, was just uh, the art the art space piece around the study as well. Great. Before um, we get into yes, that, yes. I'm
1: just going to quickly break down some yeah. of the terms you use yes. for, for people listening who might not <laughs> right. necessarily know. So, yeah. you know, when we talk about qualitative research, right. it's come up a lot on this podcast so right. far. We're we're looking at research that doesn't use um, numbers to right. study things. Is that right? We're we're looking at using um, language. So something like an interview yes. that you've used, you go in and and analyze. You know, uh, you can think of it comparing it to a quantitative study where you might go and analyze the numbers through stats. Here you use qualitative methods to analyze the language in this case. Exactly. And when you say inter-rater reliability, could you tell us a little bit about what that means?
0: Yes, for sure. So inter-rater reliability is looking at after the coding is complete or after a certain set of codes are complete. You're going back, and you're essentially in, in the quantitative world. You could just have a number at the end, like a, like SPSS. or R could just like spit out a number for you and let you know what your interrater reliability is and if it's good or bad, which essentially shows you how commonly agreed that code was or how how much agreement there was for that specific code or theme. With qualitative, it's a little bit more tricky because a lot of it was subjective um so we just I essentially just sat with Dima and Aruba and we just had meetings and meetings just saying okay no I thought this was more about mental health and Aruba was like no this talked about more this looked like a spiritual code so just talking with each other and then agreeing upon the right code the right category that explained that theme in the best way amazing
1: so yeah it sounds like you and your your people who are going through and helping you analyze um Making sure that you're all on the same page when yes. it comes to how you're going through and analyzing it yes. because there's a bit of subjectivity, I guess, involved in how you go. Absolutely cool. Um, you wanted to mention about the arts component to your
0: work, yes, yeah, for sure. So, I, in addition to the um in depth qualitative interviews, I also had um, just again, just to get i guess my creative juices flowing, just yeah. to get away from all the academic stuff, um, was for participants to bring in a, an artifact, so a piece of just any any material, any object, um, even a painting or drawing of their own, that represented their journey of studying the Qur'an. And it could also be a representation of how that impacted them, uh, their spirituality, their mental health. So during those interviews, they also brought in uh, different artifacts. And then I'm currently using symbolism to analyze those artifacts and just learning a lot about how to do arts-informed and arts-based uh, research as well.
1: So we've talked conceptually about <laughs> uh, integrating Islamic principles in in research yes. a, a little bit. I'm curious how that happens, sort of in practice in your project. Is that something that's on display in this work that you're sharing with us today?
0: Um, yes, absolutely. So um, in practice, and sort of the applied version of Islamic psychology, um, is essentially just having like for for women in my study having a safe space for them to talk about what it means to be Muslim. And then even more practically and concretely to show those objects, those artifacts that I had mentioned earlier. Uh, Some women showed like a hijab, the the hijab uniform that we had to wear at al Huda Institute, um, which no one really liked. It It was a black dress and a white. Uh, scarves, everyone just made fun of us and said we look like penguins. So we've accepted the penguin identity now, which is fine. Uh, but the, uh, the black abaya and the white hijab is a very common <laughs> uniform color for Islamic schools. So it's just we've accepted that. Um, and, and just being able to laugh about these things as well and not not being um, like ashamed to share these types of things within, uh, within a research study. Um, some people showed a specific verse of the Qur'an. Um, that rarely after hardship there is ease, rarely after hardship there is ease. So that verse gets repeated uh, twice in a particular chapter. Uh, So just sharing particular verses, uh, maybe sharing a a prophetic story from Prophet Abraham or Prophet Moses or any of the even the biblical prophets that are mentioned in the Quran as well. So very practical verses, stories, and how that relates to their everyday lives. I think that was sort of seeing the lived Islamic psychology in my study. Amazing.
1: And I know you work at the Khalil Center as a researcher or at least were for the last year or so. Yes. Um, Does that inform your understanding of these concepts at all?
0: Yes, absolutely. So Khalil Center is like, like if you, I think this it's like the dream center where a lot of Muslim clinicians would love to work because um, it is a center that is founded on the principles of Islamic psychology. Mm. Um, as a researcher, I love it because it is evidence-based. So uh, they have something called the TIIP, the Traditional Islamically Integrated Psychotherapy Model, uh, which I would love to test out for them as a postdoc, but that's something later. Um, so they have published papers on this. They have a couple of books that they've published as well. Uh, Dr. Human Keshawarzi is the executive director. He actually went to UFT Scarborough um, when I was perhaps there, or maybe a little bit before me. Uh, so it's from Toronto. So it's essentially people who uh, from here just thought, hey, we need a a mental health clinic, a community wellness center for Muslims to come in and to be able to integrate psychology as well as spirituality in a professional space. So we're not, it's not imams giving informal counseling. It's not going to your local mosque, but it's coming to an actual clinic it's a therapy office it's very it's very beautifully done also great calligraphy pieces there as well Um, and it's really expanded there's five offices across North America Chicago is the headquarters and in Toronto we have an office as well about seven or eight therapists a couple of admin people some volunteers we have an internship program for graduate students now um, as well so this is sort of like Islamic psychology applied and you're Mm. seeing it just in in therapy
1: very cool Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about arts as well and right. your interest in arts and, and where that came as sort of a therapeutic space. I'm wondering about how you practically use that in, in this project we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, we ta- Again, we covered that a little bit, but right. maybe let's dive a little more in depth.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think I, I wanted to have my participants just have some space to be able to materialize these conceptual things that we talk about mm-hmm. in Islamic psychology, uh, so there's a lot of talk of um, the qalb, which is the heart, the ruh, which is like the life-giving force. Uh, there's different um, Arabic terminology that I won't get into, but for behavior, for thoughts, for emotions. I can get kind of very high-level academic, um, so I just, I didn't want to have my participants like talk about these types of things, like the psyche and all of this stuff from like a Freudian perspective or from an Islamic perspective. And I just wanted them to be able to have something that they could show that represents what it means to be a Muslim and to also talk about mental health in a safe space. And that's where the artifacts um, came in. And that's, so there's, they're, they're not necessarily drawing anything. Also, one of my participants did draw a painting. They did write something with their calligraphy pens that they had from one of their al courses. Uh, so I think that art piece kind of freed up the conversation and we were able to move beyond those 10 systematic questions in my uh, semi-structured interview. And it was more free-flowing. conversation and that art piece that artifact it just allowed people to talk about something beyond just islamic psychology mental health the data that i needed for my research and just really get into the experiences of how it was for them to study the quran if they did some of them were not even religious based artifacts it was just um like a leaf somebody brought a leaf that was their artifact so we talked about nature and how nature relates to spirituality so it was more i think art allowed for a more free-flowing conversation
1: Amazing. So the art was, or um, the artifacts in, yeah. in, in some cases yeah. were used to guide the ensuing interview. What, what, did you combine any analysis of the artifact itself with the interviews or was it really just a prompt to inspire the interview that then you would use and analyze for your work?
0: Yes, it's a great question. And interestingly, I used the artifacts at the end of the interview. And oh. I'm thinking maybe I should have done it. Uh. <laughs> I should have consulted you, Mike, for um, my uh, proposal. But it was... Yes, it was at the end of the interview. So I just as we were wrapping up, I would just ask them, hey, like, you know, you were asked to bring an artifact. Mm-hmm. Do you want to share anything? And that just ended up becoming another 30-minute conversation. Ah. <laughs> so it just, I think it made it, it wasn't a prompt. It was just not even a follow-up. I i don't, I have to still work on that and see in my analysis, like how that, I think it added to the conversation and sometimes it made for a very different conversation. And I think people became even more vulnerable than they were mm. with the questions. Uh, there de- There's definitely more emotions. When they talked about that journal entry or that ring that my husband gave me when i started the alhuda course and what that ring meant so just different images that were coming up um, and i i just stopped taking notes i was like i just gotta listen to what they have to say yeah.
1: they also uh, carried out that activity of of getting that artifact yes. before the interview so i'm sure that inspired how they were speaking to you before they actively talked about it with you too.
0: Yes, absolutely. And for some I think one of the questions that I know what Michaela had um, suggested that I ask was how was the experience of looking for that artifact? For some people oh. they were like we had to sort of think about it. It was like it's not an easy thing to just like pick up something. And for some people they were like they just knew exactly what their artifact was going to be, so I think that also played a part in it
1: well, it's so interesting. I'd love to talk a little more about your participants about because um, one of the special things I know about qualitative research generally and certainly about the work that you've been describing mm-hmm. is you can get close in some ways and mm-hmm. you can learn a lot about them and so were there any memorable moments or um, findings that that you wanted to share
0: yes, absolutely um I think the the biggest thing in just looking through my um, our deduced transcripts was um, the absence of the word empowerment so I have the word empowerment in my literature reviews um, in my research proposal and just in just a lot of the work that I do in epistemology and all these types of things and these women are describing empowerment without using the word mm. empowerment so that's something that was very interesting they're describing some of what feminist theories talk about without seeing they're a feminist and there's of course a lot of like a lot of things to unpack there as to why they're not using this terminology or maybe they're intentionally or unintentionally these terms are not coming up but they're saying things like I feel more in control of my life after studying the Quran my mental well-being is so much better after I went through this course uh, I don't get stressed about the little things anymore so they're describing different elements of control authority getting their life together mm-hmm. without describing I don't want to say Western terms, but just sort of the Western ways of understanding what it means to be an empowered woman or an empowered Muslim woman. They also don't use words like oppression or oppressive. So they describe things that they were maybe struggling with, that there were challenges in their families, but they don't use words like oppression either. So it was, it was interesting, the different wording choice that they had.
1: So interesting. Do you have any ideas as to, uh, as to why this might be the case? Or maybe any questions that could stimulate future explorations?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, I think uh, after reading way too many articles on uh, feminist uh, theories and just uh, postmodern feminism and knowing the academic side of it, um, I do worry sometimes that maybe just within, from the insider perspective, that Muslim women and Muslims in general, they just they perhaps think that we are at odds with feminism, feminist theories, the different feminist movements that have happened throughout mm. the years. Um, so I would have liked to follow up a little bit more on just their perspectives, just asking straight without being um, scared of the question. That hey, what do you think about feminism? And just uh, like is is that is that the new F word, right? As people say, like is that why are we so scared of that term? And I can see I can see both perspectives that. There are some ideologies, some frameworks within some of these theories that do not align with Islamic values and Islamic Mm -hmm. gender roles. But On the opposite side, Islamic gender roles are not as strict as some of the Western gender roles are. So gender is a bit more fluid, actually, in Islam than it is in Western uh, understandings um, of gender, which is a whole other topic as well. So I think I would have liked to just get into that um, discussion with my participants uh, as well, I just see, are they, are they afraid of aligning with some of the Western models? Like, can we take, can we like borrow from each other? Do we have to stick to completely Islamic or completely Western? Can we have a bit more dialogue?
1: I'm really admiring how you've avoided um, imposing certain Western frameworks right. while still asking the questions. Yes, um, is that something that you do consciously? Um, b- because I'm getting sort of that that sense of yeah. how can we ask these questions and have these conversations right. without pushing um, capital F feminism if right. if it's not being received by the community in the way that that um, that you would like it to be or you think it should. Um yeah. Uh, I'm I'm rambling a bit now, but do you sort of uh, get my
0: question? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's a great question, Mike. Um, yes, it is very intentional because I know if I say, if I if I just if I start I, with certain circles, if I'm within with like Muslim psychologists, Muslim researchers, we have these conversations all the time. If it's a general audience, I'm just doing a mental health workshop on gender roles, on marriage and dating and sexuality. In those in those conversations with just like different age groups, if we're just at a mosque, anyone could come in. Um, I will be a little bit more careful. Somebody might be recording my words. Uh, it could Anything could be happening, especially within the current um, sociopolitical um, turmoil that we're going through. So I am mm-hmm. very careful, especially when it comes to um, gender-based things, politics, things like this. Uh, I, 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 that tension is always there.
1: I wanted to ask about COVID-19. How yes. did this affect your work and, and your project?
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. Everything changed after COVID.
1: <laughs> now, had you started before and it interrupted?
0: Yes, exactly. Uh, so the f- uh, first uh, two studies that I had done, for my doctoral studies, everything was in person. I was loving it, just meeting people in person. Uh, the Syrian newcomers, we had done focus groups with them at our local mosque. Um, any, any of the studies that I had done were always in person getting to have coffee and just like sitting down with some timbits after a research study was always really nice. Yeah. Um, My third and fourth study, my dissertation study and the one that I'd done with Khalil Center in partnership with the MyTax grant, Grant uh, that we received that ended up being completely online. And we thought, okay, how are we going to do an arts based peer support group virtually? Like this is like not a thing. Like how are we getting the art supplies to them? But it actually worked out really beautifully. And we were able to do a whole literature review on just technology enhanced interventions and we were able to look at how technology can uh, either be a barrier or um, can actually be useful in certain um, in certain works in research work as well as clinical practice mm. uh, so I did have an art therapist from Khalil Center she made the art kits she mailed them out to our nine or ten participants um it was through zoom I believe uh, and we had all uh, done like a five-week support group I was just collecting data for one of my for my one of my studies as a precursor to my dissertation. Um, and we were just so surprised by the findings. I thought we could never pull this off. I was like, this is like virtual. Like, w- how are people going to like do art, like through a screen? Um, at the end of five weeks, all the participants were like, can you please get more funding so we can continue? Oh, like, wow. So one participant said, "I this is, th- this is what I look forward to on a Sunday. Like, this is my only way of getting support during COVID. She had nowhere else to go um lack of family support uh, other other challenges in her life and she was looking forward to a research study that was being done on zoom and there was of course some art involved we had an art therapist there as well so i, d- I didn't realize the impact that i was like, okay covid with everything did have its uh blessings and people from all over toronto were able to join this support group
1: it really makes you th- sort of rethink about the kind of benefit you are providing as a, mm-hmm. as a researcher um, and I know someone who's running peer support groups for this particular um, yeah. project. But it was so meaningful during COVID to have any kind of group gathering, yes. even even online. Right. Although I do know, after a few years, I got a little bit. Yes, I got yes. a little bit tired of the <laughs> yeah. twos.
0: So. I'm done now with that. <laughs> but
1: yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'd love to ask before we move on to our last chapter, just about your personal experience as you've been moving through this project. Has it made you? change the way that you think at all about anything that you've been um, any of the topics that you've been covering in the project and also about doing research Um, how has it sort of changed your approach to these things
0: yes um, I hope that I've become a more open-minded person after all of these things Um, I was a little bit of a like a stereotype and a trope that the PhD students get very specialized in their projects and they become even more closed-minded and that's all they sort of see in this tunnel vision but I'm hoping that some, like this project opened me up to other Muslim communities as well. I've been able to go to mosques of uh, other sects within Islam, which normally don't engage that much. And it was so nice to talk to the imams of these other mosques that I've never um, been to before. So within so the intra-Islamic dialogue, I hope, has increased. The intra-Islamic dialogue, I'm also hoping, has uh, increased as well um, in terms of being able to do community workshops and do partnerships with, Uh, more secular organizations. So the York Region District School Board reached out to Khalil Center recently. So I might be doing some support groups for them, Mm. uh, for Palestinian identifying uh, families and staff. TDSB has reached out to us as well. So I'm hoping that the dialogue just continues. I I just don't want the dialogue and my learning to ever stop. So I may have come in perhaps with certain uh, misconceptions or preconceptions, but I've I've just learned a lot, just even about the Muslim faith and just how these Muslim women who I, like they were my at al Institute but how each of them have come with so much just, just a diverse and varied um, experience and I think I just don't, um, just with fake news and with all this stuff I just I just don't take anything, I, I just have to research like <laughs> the crap out of everything now just mm-hmm. really understand okay who is saying this, what was the historical context what are the different voices, who's not at the table, who is at the table the nuance between everything so it takes me like, oh, I just don't have any strong opinions anymore I'm just like no no I'm still (laughs) looking into it right now Um, and and try to teach that to just like it's a younger generation especially Muslims up and coming that hey like before forming any opinions just sit down with a person that you disagree with and just have a conversation and see where you could see eye to eye
1: so moving on to our fourth chapter (laughs) what's next um, for you so our our um, I wanted to start off by asking you know what you see is the main implications or maybe applications of your dissertation research. I know we've talked a little bit about this, but um, what do you think? What, what, what do you think are the main takeaways?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the two main um, applications, one would be, I think, just um, the evidence and the importance of doing peer support groups. Um, so I think especially for Khalil Center, like they've, they've been sort of following my research. Like I, I'm hoping to publish one of the upcoming conferences that they will be having. Um, to that that therapy, of course, individual therapy, family therapy, couples therapy is all great. But just, just to have that space for community members to come in and have a social sort of gathering. So it's sort of like I always kind of compare peer support groups to focus groups. So focus groups, of course, are for data collection. Peer support groups are more for uh, people to share stories and uh, recovery, healing, share resources. Um, so I, I would like to see more peer support groups being offered by our mosques our other Islamic schools, Islamic institutes, especially for things that are maybe not as serious that would require like 10 sessions of therapy. Mm. Uh, The other main application that I see for my research is um, educational. So I think um, I've been reached, uh, Al-Hoda Institute rather has reached out to me to develop a course for them called Quran and Psychology Mm. after seeing the work that I was doing there. Um, So I do see some, some elements of education, curriculum development, teaching, um, and also training um, graduate-level students uh, who are interested in studying Islamic psychology, Muslim mental health. Uh, a lot of work has been done in quantitative uh, training, but not as much on training qualitative researchers. Mm. So I think that would be some of my applications. And uh, perhaps for a, an international postdoc, there, there's, uh, I know there are opportunities in Turkey in qatar um from khalil center as well for a one-year postdoc in islamic psychology so i would love to go international for a year and see yeah if that's something that i could do with my family
1: that sounds amazing yeah yes. well that yeah. was my next question is my. your personal goals and aspirations right. you mentioned also a postdoc with the khalil center maybe um, yes. testing one of their uh instruments that they've been developing was that right yes yeah,
0: so it's a conceptual model so oh ob- i yes see. yeah yeah, so I would love to um, just, again, just doing uh, maybe, maybe even mixed methods. It doesn't have to be entirely qualitative, but um, getting uh, essentially having therapists use that model with some of their clients. Some clients get just general Islamic psychology uh, and some clients might just get secular therapy, comparing the different groups. I'm um, just doing a full on a full on research study, getting <laughs> getting all the nerdy things in, confounding factors, control groups. I would, I would love to just uh, do a classic study, comparison study.
1: Do you see yourself uh, becoming a professor in the future or it's the academic route or is it the more, um, I, I, I don't know, I guess, community route? Uh, do you have right. a particular path in mind?
0: Absolutely. Um, I would love to do both, actually, these are mm-hmm. both of my passions. Like I, I love teaching, training. Um, I directed um, the second year course here at York, um, biological basis of behavior, like, like a neuroscience type of neuropsychology mm-hmm. course. So that was my first sort of um So just a sense of how much work it is to direct a full course to have TAs work for you. It was a great experience just to be able to um, make your own syllabus, to set your own exams, to talk with undergraduate students. Um, I also taught psychometrics at the Islamic Online University. Um, My workshops are basically like trainings now, like mental health staff training. So there's a lot of teaching psychoeducation in that as well. So I would love to teach at the uh, undergraduate level if I can and also continue my community based work
1: fantastic now everyone has a guilty pleasure on a lighter note uh <laughs> you know it could be a comfort food or right. a tv show uh, yeah do you have any any particular guilty pleasure that you like to indulge in
0: oh that's a good question oh my goodness i think after becoming a mom like just like naps are like i don't even <laughs> think this is like a survival thing it's not even <laughs> if, I, if i could just sleep i would sleep um i wouldn't be guilty about that yeah um I know this is like like reading self-help books. I know I shouldn't as like a psychology student, but like Renee Brown, I just I just I don't know why I pick up self-help books and I watch all these self-help channels on YouTube. And I, again, this is just maybe mom life. I, I would never do this before, but just like organizing, like how to organize your kitchen, how to organize it. It's just I, 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 I think my other like job could be like like a master declutterer, minimalist guru type of thing. Like I love organizing things. And that's why my office is bothering me so much right now that I left all of the stuff here. Um, so anything like that. And then if I'm just really like, I just, I just want to zone out of everything. Office reruns like anytime. I can just watch The Office with my husband, with some ice cream, like that's anytime.
1: <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us about your work or yourself before we wrap it up?
0: Um... No, I think you covered, yeah, you covered everything, Mike. Thank you. That was very comprehensive. It made me reflect on just the last <laughs> six and a half um, years. And, and, you know, on on the topic on reflection, reflexivity, I'll just share that last piece that sure. I think qualitative research, that's what really drew me to it. When I learned this idea of critical reflection, that you are as much part of the research as your participants, as your research questions, that which I was just blown away. I was like, this this requires a lot of introspection again therapy comes into that as well um retraining yourself your own biases and not being afraid of having a bias and you you mm. go in as human you come out of the research as a better human i hope um and it's okay to have biases as long as you acknowledge them you understand that it will play a role in your research so i think yeah i think everyone should just do qualitative research or even if you're doing quantitative research have a portion for reflexivity this this idea of reflexivity has helped me with homeschooling my children with doing community work with like just my own spiritual connection with God like reflexivity I use it in in everything now for some reason so just yeah it's the nerdy last little thing for you
1: (laughs) I couldn't agree more yeah I think I don't think science happens without people who have particular perspectives and interests right. that they try to pursue yeah um so it's so important that we clock it and so interesting yes. and i do hope that this podcast you know it contributes to that exercise right. and shows people how interesting it really is to look into um the people who make science and right. why yes and uh how that can be a really really great practice an important practice to understand the kind of knowledge that's created
0: yes
1: um so thank you for participating in that right.
0: with us <laughs> thank you
1: so, yeah, I think that's it for today. Thank you so much, Kashmala. That was a really, really wonderful um, conversation that we had. And thanks for being so open uh, and being willing to come all the way down to campus. <laughs> I know it's like a trek for you. So, yeah.
0: no worries at so all. Much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Mike.
1: Yes, thank you to Ben, our, our, our fantastic producer, as always. And thank you to our team. Umut Fidan.
0: Suveida Özşahin Josephine Kanu.
1: As always, I've been Michael Ruderman. This has been the Mockup Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.